Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, each Tuesday, Caitlin meets with a support group to discuss their constant intrusive thoughts about death. The meetings punctuate a life on hold, waitressing at Sawyer's, living in a squalid cat piss house, reluctantly socialising with workmates, walking at night to battle chronic insomnia. But when Caitlin's best friend Lena announces she's getting married and the quietly compelling doctor Tom starts hanging around Sawyer's, Caitlin's self-imposed purgatory starts to unravel and all the things she's tried to hold off start to push through the cracks. Eva Ramsey's The Morbids is a darkly constructed rom-com built on the chronological fault lines that ripple out from a serious trauma. Eva joins me today for a long-form interview to talk about the craft behind her debut novel and the kind of wonderful story about how it was found by an agent uh, in the slush pile, as it is, as it is horribly known uh, when people send their their books into publishers unsolicited. The interview uh, and excerpts from the book may refer to subjects like mental illness and trauma that may be sensitive for some listeners, so please be warned about that. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. We all had our favourites. Franny's was cancer, Carlo's vehicular. Louise had only been coming for a couple of months, but it was obvious she was expecting something violent yet premeditated, a stalker or an ex-partner or her childhood enemy. Mine was a mugging gone wrong, wrong place, wrong time type stuff, killed in a moment of panic or by accident, sexual violence of varying degrees optional, currently waning in frequency. That's an extract from The Morbids by Eva Ramsey. The book's protagonist, Caitlin, meets weekly with a support group to discuss her constant intrusive thoughts about death. The meetings punctuate a life on hold, waitressing at Sawyer's, living in the squalid cat cat piss house, reluctantly socialising with workmates, walking at night to battle chronic insomnia. But when her best friend Lena announces she's getting married and the quietly compelling Dr Tom starts hanging around Sawyer's, Caitlin's self-imposed purgatory starts to unravel and all the things she's tried to hold off begin to push through the cracks. Eva Ramsey joins me now to discuss this darkly constructed rom-com. Eva, welcome to Backstory. Hi Mel, thank you so much for having me and thank you for that beautiful reading. That was I was hoping you weren't going to ask me to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I do have the book in front of me and I have to say, just to start on a very odd um, note, I sort of felt like starting at the end and by the end I mean the acknowledgement section because there is a really lovely story at the heart of this book and I did touch on it um, earlier in the show and that is that this was one of those books that, that actually defies the kind of truism of publishing which is that books don't get published out of the slush pile. I would love you to talk about how this book came to be picked up and published. 
Okay, well, I was working on it for quite a while and then I had... I sort of, I had a plan and I wasn't really thinking of agents at the time. I was really like, I'm going to send it straight to publishers. I, you know, Alan and I was, when, were my absolute first choice and um, then I had a list going down from there and I think I was, I was very rule following. So, you know, how they tell you, I don't know, you know but they tell you, you know, if you, we'll, we'll keep, you'll hear back from us within, within three months and we ask you not to submit anywhere else in the meantime. And I was very, I literally had a three-year-long plan to just get rejected <laughs> by everybody. Um, I sent it off to Alan and when I didn't hear back from them. And then I was on a Facebook group for, for young writers and someone started talking about agents. And um, an agent came up that I'd, I'd heard a little bit about. I went and researched their website. They said, well, you'll heal back from us within two weeks. Right, I've got a gap between my, before my next submission to a publisher. I'll send it off and see what happens. Um, and the next day, Grace, who is my agent, rang, um, emailed me and was like, send the rest through because I only sent 50 pages. And by the end of the week, she was representing me. So um, that was, was kind of a, a bit of a a dream come true and something I didn't think that happened. And then Grace and I worked on it together for a good, close on a year before it went out to actual publishers from there. But, yeah, it was it was quite fortuitous. She was telling me how many um, manuscripts she sees through the slush pile and, and it, just, it, it just feels like sort of right place, right time, the right person checking email. Yeah, it is kind of, it's sort of a really interesting thing because, um, and I don't know whether you would characterise your book as a a rom-com, but as a kind of blackly comedic rom-com, there are many other elements to the book. But in a funny sort of a way, I feel like the way you were found has a a kind of rom-com element to it because it's such an unlikely thing. Um, You know, obviously there are a lot of books in in a slush pile to find the right agent and the right book at the right moment. Yes, definitely. And I think, I mean, Grace was 100% on board with everything from the beginning, but she was also the first person who'd read it who really knew what it, what I needed to do to it to get it ready for actual publication. And there was a whole other sort of storyline in it and... Uh, you know, it was it was a bit dark, it was a bit edgy, and she sort of said, "You've got these two different books here," and it was really this breakthrough. Like, I, I think I, I still feel incredibly lucky to have had her insight into that process. And then, obviously, she knew exactly where she was thinking it could go, and and all of that. So it was just, yeah, it feels very fate-like to have made that connection. Well, let's talk about the structure of this book because that really is uh, one of the the features that I find the most compelling. It's a really uh, well-structured book uh, in a way that mirrors um, the central conceit, which is the person at the heart of the book, Caitlin, uh, is really grappling with what you know, what transpires to be quite a serious um, trauma. And you kind of, I don't want to give away too much about the book, but do you want to talk about how you have structured the book around this sort of central um, trauma that that Caitlin is dealing with and and her constant mania about uh, death and how it's going to pounce upon her? So what I what I tried to do is every chapter of the book is a different day of the week or a different day over a period of a about six to eight months, I think. But it's interspersed with flashbacks to um, a period called Once, which we find out later is about two years in the past, and that is the lead-up to this traumatic event. Again, in sort of these little episodes that you, you see 
you see it coming. I don't want to say you see it like, you know, a car crash in slow motion, but you do start to sort of see what's going to happen and, and how it's going to tie it back to where she is at the start of the present-day narrative in the book. Um, and I, I liked using once because it's... I find that when you have these traumatic events, quite often they do detach from time in your mind. So I, I, I like that idea of sort of pulling them out of... It didn't say what day of the week it was. Suddenly it didn't say exactly where we were. They were a little bit vague and a little bit sort of nebulous, I guess. And they break up the present-day narrative until we sort of come to a point where she, where Caitlin's having to deal with it in the present and we're also seeing it in the past. Yeah, you're absolutely maintaining that sense throughout the book of, you know, the, the reader is unmoored in time as Caitlin is. So we're uncertain at any given time whether we're in the present or the past. It sort of slips into each, each other. And you use these conceits, obviously, of, of being a bit vague about, um, you know, the way that you sort of head up each of the sections of each chapter, um, you know, with these kind of oblique headings that are quite sort of, um, you know, like I guess ambiguous and you gradually work out that when you have once maybe it might be in a different time setting. Uh, But also, you know, you use this, uh, you know, the communication that uh, Caitlin has with her best friend Lena through these old postcards um, that, you know, that Lena has found um, and sends to her friend. So you're kind of playing with these ideas um, and, you know, these kind of devices that that keep the, the, the reader in a sort of constant sense of uncertainty about time. So we're very much in the head of the unreliable narrator. Mm, definitely. And I think I, I know that, for, I guess, for some people it's probably a bit of a frustrating read for that reason, but I, I really did want to put people into that position where they, they sort of understood that, how anxiety can manifest or how it manifests me. I'm obviously just one person with it and how it does play, you know, your thoughts jump around. Sometimes you're in the past, sometimes you're in the present. You've got all these different things and, and it can be quite hard to to focus and move forward in, in one direction. And and I think, yeah, Caitlin's not necessarily telling us the full story, especially not at the beginning. I think she's in denial to herself, so she's not going to be honest with the, the readers at the same time. Yeah, she's absolutely a classic unreliable narrator in that sense that she's kind of, you know, not being truthful with anyone really in her life or with herself most of all and by extension the reader, which is one of the really um, the really excellent features of this book. You do also play with language a lot, as you say, that, uh, that you kind of at, at certain points and as we progress in the book, the language starts to fragment as the confusion in her mind becomes more evident. She's sort of reaching a point of crisis um, and that's very much reflected. And I do, I would like to pick up on that point of, of that feeling of frustration because I think that that does filter through to the reader in a way that makes, uh, makes you empathise somewhat with that character. How did you consider struck that what what was the kind of process of, of creating that structure like I don't know that's a really good and quite tricky question I think a lot of it came quite organically um, as I was writing but I did I mean I like playing with repetition in language as well so there was quite a bit of that especially when Caitlin sort of moves towards crisis there is she keeps having the same thoughts over and over again and the same fragments of thoughts and yeah, I 
that's a really uh, you stumped me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. That's uh, I, I'm just okay. so fascinated by the way structure works in this book. But I guess look, uh, you talked a lot about, or you talked earlier about uh, working for close to a year with the agent um, to really develop the book, and that's really what struck me was that this was a debut novel with a very sophisticated structure, and I really thought if you've worked on something, especially that. Uh, what you alluded to earlier about the feeling that there were two books in there. And I do think that structure is an area that a lot of authors struggle with naturally enough, especially when they're embarking on a brand new thing, writing a novel. So so I'm sort of interested, is that something that you feel like you really, uh, you focused on trying to integrate these ideas along with the wordplay and, and, you know, that kind of amalgamating these different storylines? Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that is I think of one of my weaknesses. I'm not a plotter. I, when I write, I'm very, it's, it's all very organic. There's no grand plan. I'm very sort of just whatever comes and I'll put down on the page. And then I really try and bring it back and create something cohesive. And I think it was really fantastic working with Grace, my agent, because when you've got someone else that comes in, they can sort of see that bigger picture maybe better than you can. So really, I had this this big story on the page. It was also 30,000 words longer. <laughs> this is quite shocking to me now that I, it was that long. But what having another person in there, was it just keeps you on track in terms of remembering what you're trying to do and what needs to be in there and what doesn't. And, yeah, you start to be able to formulate a bigger picture. And so I think 90% of the writing process was actually cutting and replacing and reworking and just getting that balance right as well and the story in there because that's my story is my weakest thing. I never know what I want my characters to do. I just want them to exist. So. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think there is one name on the cover, but there's so much about the art of creating books that involves the collaboration. And that's why I love reading acknowledgements pages, because it really talks about the process of, you know, that that work that a a good editor or a good agent can help you to do uh, to really get a book um, to a stage where, you know, it, it has that kind of really firm structure. Oh, definitely. I love working. I loved working with Grace as my agent and but also Kelly, my publisher, Alan and Unwin, who just had some great insight. And then I was really blessed to be able to work with Ali Laveau, who is a gone agent, uh, not agent, editor. I'm losing my words. But she uh, she's worked with Charlotte Wood. She's worked with pretty much everyone that I admire. She's She's just fantastic and her insight was amazing and in in just getting that final tightening up and figuring out where the weaknesses were and writing is so solitary it's so easy to lose track of what you're trying to do so having other people in it is just it's transformative and I think anyone who's ever afraid of the editing process I just want to say you know those people have your best interests at heart and they just want to help you create something and it's it's so great to be able to work with such great people. I do want to talk uh, a bit about, we've, we've discussed it, the structure of the book and how it sort of revolves around this uh, this great trauma and the, the kind of 
way it affects chronology, both for the person who's experiencing it and the way that you've delivered the book. But we haven't talked about the other story that is uh, that is a part of all of this, and that is, of course, the romance. And I need to premise that by letting you know that I'm not usually a fan of the rom-com, um, but I'm so fascinated by the way uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of genre works are constructed. And I feel like you've got a really strong sense of that. You focus on the quotidian, like the little details, which works both for the kind of focus on trauma, but also to to kind of really push that romance forward. Also, I think with things like crimes and, and romance, there's the there's the romance and then there's the real romance, which is of course a different thing. Can we talk a little bit about this part of the story? Yes. Um Oh gosh, I'm a bit stumped. No, so the the romance in the book is on on some level between Caitlin and a, a cute young doctor named Tom, who is seemingly quite perfect. But that is always a very subjective thing, you know. I I think he's got that sort of personality where, on one level, you just think he's great, but when you dig a little deeper, he is a bit. You know, maybe a bit stuck in his ways. He's he's just come out of a nine-year relationship. He's quite happy to obviously let his parents sort of drive his life a little bit, which is fine. And obviously when we meet him, I think he is trying to break out of that a little bit. And, and I guess his relationship with Caitlin is part of that. Um, but the other, to me, bigger romance is actually between Caitlin and her best friend, Lena, who has a huge part in the book and to me that relationship always ends up being the most important but I know that you know in fiction we do sort of we like a bit of a a romantic storyline as well. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, I guess this is what I'm getting at, that uh, that in, you know, in romances quite often the sort of central premise of it is the friendship, like this this really important relationship um, really is central in, in many people's lives and this is, you know, the, the friend that has been with you that's helped you kind of transition into adulthood and now you're kind of reaching that point of change. And it's mm. always that, that really interesting time where you're like, how do you accommodate that and still remain? friends. And I think that that's really at the heart of this book as well is, um, you know, when you're reaching the point where, you know, where that happens, what do you do? And in many ways, Caitlin is stuck, um, you know, in, in almost every way she's stuck. So I'm really interested in how you played this out. How did you integrate these two storylines? In, in the writing process side of it, it was very much a, a case of the romance was there first. And Probably too much of it. I, I really had to pull that back. I mean, I am a mushy-hearted rom-com fan from way back. So when I'm writing, I always have to sort of pull that element back a little bit. And Lena was a lot slower to develop, to be honest. She was barely in the first couple of drafts. Um, but I always just felt like there was something missing and bringing her into it and giving her a bigger storyline and really focusing on that backstory between these two characters, which even in the first draft I'd hinted at but not really fleshed out, really when when I gave her that position as the main sort of protagonist friend, you know, that's sort of the secondary character. I'm losing my words today. I, I do apologise. It really made everything else in the book click together and it made it a lot easier to balance 
everything else. And I think that through line with Lena is is there the whole time, even though she's not actually, you know, on page very often. There are whole chunks of the book where she doesn't feature at all. And I think that is also reflective of of a lot of those long-term friendships where they're always there and you're always sort of thinking about these people, but you don't necessarily have to talk to them all the time. And, and you know, you can go great chunks of time without necessarily being in touch, but you know they've got your back. And Caitlin doesn't always know that, but I think as a reader, I hope we know that. It's sort of interesting because I've, I've been thinking about this and I was thinking about it while I was reading this book, that, that kind of genre books in a way, um, and there are elements of the romance genre in this book, uh, allow you to tell stories uh, that are kind of, you know, in a way stories that, that many people can connect with while the main broad brush elements uh, remain comfortingly in place, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of felt like this was really, you know, that that in the genre of romance, it's often a kind of coming of age story as well. It's a point of change story. Would you would you agree with that? And also, I, I would really stress uh, that I am not uh, in any way an expert <laughs> on the romance genre. But does that does that kind of ring true for you? I think so, and I think it is a really interesting thing that I'm seeing in the reaction to the book is that there seem to be, because it does span both things, it does have that romantic and romantic comedy element, and then it does have a lot of the mental health and slightly more contemporary literary elements that sort of people who are approaching it as a romance can be a little bit sometimes put off by the darker aspects, whereas people who are approaching it as something more literary have been put off by the romance. And it's whereas to me they work together. So you can tell quite a dark, quite sad story, but without necessarily dragging people down and not giving them a chance to recover. And I think, especially this year, having that light at the end of the tunnel feels really important to me. And and I, I yeah. I I kind of like that, that romance can be a little bit escapist and it can let you get really down low and explore the depths because you sort of have that knowledge that at the end of the day everything will be okay and if not perfectly okay, at least on its way to okay, I think. That idea of the happy ever after ending that uh, that we don't want so often in literary fiction, but that that contains the universe in in these genre books in a sense. Mm, and I think it's it's such an interesting thing because that happily ever after, you know, we don't want it in our books, but I think so many people do want it in real life, and it's not it's it's not even happily ever after. It's sort of happily for now, and I think. <laughs> That's what I'm aiming for with the with the end of the. I don't. Eva, it's, it's all we want. It's all we want right now. <laughs> if only we could have happy for now. I have to say, with with gratitude of being able to get the mask off outside and mm. you know donut days galore, these kinds of things, small happinesses are certainly welcome. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to Eva Ramsey about her debut novel, The Morbids. Um, which is a, a book that sort of is structured around a, uh, a, a traumatic experience and how that affects chronology, but also a romance uh, and all of these elements. I do This is a, a kind of show about craft, so I do tend to focus on craft. 
And the thing I'm always fascinated by in in writing that has a kind of driving plot line is how that work is done. Uh, and you're using a lot of techniques in this book to, to move people along. But one of the main things I think in plotted books is to have things active to really push things through with action. Did you find, and you are quite often obviously uh, in the head of the protagonist, we're very much getting her internal monologue. So I'm really interested in how you're achieving this sort of uh, driving narrative while also giving us a lot of that internal monologue. What are the sort of techniques that you use to achieve that? It's really tricky because, like, as I said earlier, plotting is, to me, it feels like my weakness. So I find it really difficult. I think one thing that really helped me drive the narrative forward was having a deadline and having an, an event that is at the end of of the journey. You know, you, you've got to be going somewhere. In this book, actually, literally, literally, we're heading off to Lena's wedding in Bali, but you know, in general, it, it helped me to be like, well, this is where the characters have to end up somehow, and I have to take steps towards that. And and that sort of gave me the, the, the impetus and I hope has driven the plot. I mean, on a much more micro level, it's... I really... I mean, I'm a big... I, I talk with my hands and I I am very physically active in when I'm having conversations and things, and so... When I was writing, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of dialogue, but I also really want to focus on the way these characters work physically around each other, and hopefully that sort of keeps the sort of the chunks of conversation and dialogue from just feeling stale and stuck because you're actually sort of the characters are moving as well. Yeah, there's I a guess. lot of description of action as well. Like even when we're in uh, the you know, authorial voice. It's like, um, for example, she'd run out of a room and the postscripts ran under the address and then curled up on the side and around the stamp. I could only look at it for, for so long before it hurt my eyes. From the bottom of the pile, I pulled out a panorama of orange dirt and turquoise ocean. So you're actually describing pulling out um, postcards, but you're describing it in a really active way. You describe action and then you're you're throwing us into dialogue. And I thought that's really interesting because it's a, a difference, I guess, in, you know, when you want someone to sit in a sort of description or absorb detail, um, you do it differently. There is also a focus on detail, though, so I'm really interested in that. There's lists sort of seem to be another thing that's quite often used to kind of um, push things forward. Uh, and you use it particularly in this book to kind of show Caitlin's mental state. It's almost like a, a sort of mantra how she's listing things off. Mm, yeah. I think when I'm most anxious, which is, I guess, the, the parts of my brain that I tried to harness when I was creating Caitlin in this mode, I, that is something I tend to do. I tend to be very list-focused and detail-focused, and I'm always you know, the, the little picture is distracting me from the big picture, which is just too much to handle at those points. And so I think Caitlin very much has that part of me, I guess. It's, yeah, she's, she's overthinking in an attempt to underthink 
think. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, that seems to be that seems to be very much the case. Now, I'm going to talk about a part of a book that we often say don't judge a book by, um, but I have to say the cover of this book is certainly a wonderful thing, and um, and. You know, within publishing circles, people are very taken when um, a book has got a lot of really lovely um, details spent on the cover design and the cover itself. And this is a wonderful die-cut cover where there's, you know, a sort of um, outer cover that's got um, the morbids uh, sort of cut out um, in, you know, from the actual cardboard. And then it opens up onto a scene of a a kind of, you know, 1940s sort of idealised scene of a tropical island um, that's peeking out from the the lettering. Um, I can only imagine you would have been delighted when you, when I, you saw this book. I was. I cried a little bit. I had had no real ideas of what the cover was going to look like. You know, Alan and Onwen kept sort of saying, if you see covers you like, send them to us, tell us what you're thinking. And I had nothing. I think that was where I, like my mind had drawn a blank. I I knew I didn't want it to be that very rom-commy cover with the pink and the, the cartoon woman, usually just the bottom half of her and some script. I knew that was exactly what I didn't want. But um, I had really no bigger ideas of what I was hoping for. And Laura Thomas, who is this amazing artist who I think lives in Melbourne, although she may have recently moved, um, she took it on and this was the first thing I saw and it's the final thing we went with. And as soon as I looked at it, it was just perfect. And I really love how the pink glitter balances the the name of the book which is quite sort of dark I guess and the cut out the postcard it's like she read it and distilled it into I want to say this one page but it's actually two because it's a die cut <laughs> yes. but even just the, the fact of you know the pink glitter is is hiding the postcard and the, the postcards are hidden through the book and they're sort of Caitlin's secret um I just thought it was amazingly clever and, yeah. It's sort of interesting because I, I slightly hate that old axiom, don't judge a book by its cover, because, it, you know, so much thought does tend to go into covers and they're often they're often sort of uh, really embarked upon quite early in the process and you do have um, sensitive designers really trying to engage with the subject matter in a way that's that's incredibly moving. And let's be honest, it does affect sales and how people, um, you know, with this wonderfully tactile object, um, you know, are kind of induced to pick up a book. So in a way, a cover can really, can really sell a book. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really hard to know because obviously the covers are designed a little way out from sales and I don't envy the job of publishers having to sort of know in advance what everyone else is doing as well. Because quite often you'll you'll see trends in covers and and you see things sort of get lost almost because they look too similar to other things. And what I love about this cover in particular, and I think we've gotten really, really lucky, is it stands out from everything else. And I love that it looks different colours in different places. If I see it in some bookshops, it looks kind of like a, a grey peach. In others, it's really pink. It's... It's sort of, you know, and it sparkles and all of that. And and I think, yeah, it 
it's definitely driven sales and I think there are definitely, I mean, from judging from Instagram and, and reactions, people have picked it up on the strength of that cover. So Yes, yes. There's definitely a lot of judging by covers that's been going on out there. Well, look, uh, I'm just going to keep you for another few minutes, but I really wanted to just quickly ask you, as a first-time author, um, what advice would you give to authors um, who are worried about getting sort of mired in the slush pile? I think the first thing I'd say is keep writing because I know it can be really dispiriting and it, you, you sort of you go through stages where you want to stop. But I think so long as you don't stop, that is the only way you're going to get anywhere. If you don't submit, your chances of getting published are zero. If you submit, they're 1%, but 1% is so much more than 0%. And I, I always just remember that, you know, if, it, if you're not sending it out there, no one can read it and you've taken yourself out of the race. So keep going, which which sounds very easy to say <laughs> from a position of having been published, but it is really something that I still now struggle with sometimes. The other thing I think that is really important is building a community and finding a community, whether it's sort of online, a lot of sort of Facebook groups for, for writers or you know, connecting with other writers on Twitter or Instagram um, or attending writers' festivals, volunteering at writers' festivals. I mean, I'm on the board of the National Young Writers' Festival, which I hold so dear to my heart, and I say this in my acknowledgements, but this book would not exist if I wasn't involved in that festival because that was where I sort of found my people who encouraged me and let me talk to them about my writing and made me feel like I could be a writer for the first time. And I think when you're doing something that is so so solitary having people around you either online or in person as we can hopefully do more things in person in the future is is critical and it really keeps you your brain from running amok and imagining the worst and yeah that would be probably my one number one above all else is find a community Thank you so much for sharing that Eva and on that note it looks like uh, we have run out of time but Thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time and uh, sharing your experience um, and knowledge uh, around writing uh, The Morbids. No, thank you so much for having me, Mel. It's been great. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.